Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, where we continue our sermon series in this letter written by the Apostle Peter. As a church, we've been studying the book of Psalms, and we have taken a a break from book two of the Psalms, and before we start book three, we're going to study the New Testament and mix up our appetite and diet. So here we are, a sermon about the holiness of God's elect exiles. We want to think about holiness in God's word, and that's the agenda that we've set forth throughout the service as we stated from the beginning. Did you know that the name of the song that recently won the award for the best pop duo group performance at the recent Grammy Awards is titled Unholy? The performers were showered with accolades because this was the first time a pop song hit the top billboard charts from a non-binary person and a transgender woman. Before introducing their unholy, and quite literally, I mean this, dressed-up satanic performance at the Grammys, Madonna teed up the audience with a question. Are you all ready for a little controversy, she asks, and then goes on to say, here's what I've learned after four decades of being in the music industry. If they call you shocking, scandalous, troublesome, problematic, provocative, or dangerous, you are definitely on to something. And I'm here to give thanks to all the rebels out there forging a new path and taking the heat for all of it. You guys need to know, all you troublemakers out there, that your fearlessness does not go unnoticed. You are seen, you are heard, and most of all, you are appreciated. End quote. I don't think I need to read that quote or refer to a recent pop hit song to inform, hopefully, most of you that your heads, if they're not in the sand all day and all week, that the world around us is strange compared to the world that we're supposed to be living out here on this earth, according to God's word. As Christian author reflected on Madonna's words, Brett McCracken wrote, Moral boundaries and norms have been transgressed for so long and in so many ways that this transgressive act of pop music is actually mundane and boring. Truly, the transgressive act would be to live a moral life rather than libertine freedom. Holiness, McCracken writes, is the new transgression. He goes on to explain In case you don't know, transgression is to violate a a social norm or undermine the traditional morality. And the whole point of his article is Madonna saying, you guys are on to something. No, they're just doing the same thing people have been doing for decades. The real subversion is being godly. To be radical when the world is full of vice is to pursue virtue. In an age where amoral excess is bland, disciplined, restraint is spicy. What do you think? Amen. 
perhaps as we turn to 1 Peter and we think about this theme of God and his elect exiles, we live in a world where virtue is going to be strange. Discipline, discipleship, holiness, purity. We're foreigners. So let's read God's word together and apply this passage to our life. Starting in verse 13, down to verse 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. In one sentence, 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, it teaches us that the grace of our election enables us to be holy in our exile. The grace of our election enables us to be holy in our exile. There's two key ideas in our text. It's hope and holiness. Your hope in the gospel will determine your holiness in the present. Your future hope in the gospel will determine your holiness in the present. You could actually say that's another good big idea. I couldn't pick, so I gave you both. But I like, in terms of the overarching First Peter sermon series, to say that our hope is grounded in God's grace through our election, which enables us to be holy in our exile. So first, let's consider hope. Second, let's see how that produces holiness. Point one, hope. Hope. Do you see it in our text? It's the main verb. It's the key idea. Look at verse 13 and 14. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he continues to go on and talk about holiness and obedience and not being conformed. But before we drop into verses 14 to 16, let's just think about 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Ryan did an excellent job a few weeks ago telling us that hope is not wishful thinking. Do you remember we saw that word earlier in verse 3? We have a, a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Do you hope it won't rain today? That's wishful thinking. Biblical hope, living hope. Set your hope on grace. It's not wishful thinking. We're talking about two different kinds of words, categories, ideas. Hope is not, I hope it doesn't rain. It's, I know without a doubt, with 100% certainty, that Jesus Christ will return, which will bring grace. That's why he says fully, completely, all in. All the eggs are in that basket. Are you hedging your bets in life? 
Are you trying to think, well, I don't want to go all in on this Jesus thing? Then you're not getting it. There's one option for following Jesus. All in. Full hope in the grace that's coming. Many commentators use this word programmatic because the way this verb is written, it sets the tone. It's like it, it determines not only the course of all that's about to be said in First Peter, but it sets the tone for your life. It sets the course. And isn't it interesting then that Peter, after telling us about our living hope, says, so then hope. You have a hope, so then hope. That's the command. Hope in what though? We know what hope is. It's full, complete. I'm putting all of my life in God's hands. But in what specifically does the text say? Look carefully. Grace. Set your hope fully in grace. Hope in God's grace. The grace that is coming when Christ reveres. It's a future hope. It's a hope in God. It's a hope that you will receive in the future when Jesus Christ returns. It's a heavenly hope. It comes from above. It's a hope not in material possessions or earthly things. How many people were frantically scurrying this week because their hope was in the bank? How many people all last year were frantic and worried because their hope was in the stock market? How many of us need to confess that we hope in ourselves? The mantra of the modern day is believe in yourself. Every athlete that's interviewed after he has an incredible performance, well, I believed in myself. That's what you need to do too. Kids, go out there, believe in yourself. You can do it too. Kids, don't listen to those athletes. Listen to the Bible. Hope in God, not yourself. Not your good looks, not your street smarts, not your skills in school. Hope in God's grace. I wonder how many of you are putting your hope in that your doctor or your diet or your exercise will help delay your aging. Brothers and sisters, the ultimate hope for your decaying, slowly fading mind and body is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a little phrase that's used all throughout the Bible that's just another way of saying the second coming of the appearance of Jesus in bodily form, making new heaven and earth, raising your body from the dead. That's why we have a living hope. Don't hope in yourself. Don't hope in others. Don't hope in your parents. Parents, don't hope in your children. Put all my hope in my kids. They're going to take care of me. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in your friends. They'll let you down. They'll betray you. How about your government? Anybody want to put your hope in the new mayor? The Illinois government? They're, they're going to get it right this time. They promise. How about the next presidential election? Have they ever let us down? Have they ever not delivered on their promises? Oh, friends, just meditate on the difference between putting your hope in anything that is on this earth and God. Would you do that today? Throughout this sermon? Throughout the rest of this day? What are your hopes in? Our hope should be total because our hope is in God and his grace. Set your hope perfectly, fully on grace. It's a gift. That's what grace is. God wants to give you a gift. And that gift has already been downpaid by his death on the cross, 
by his resurrection from the dead, by his ascension to heaven and his pouring out of his spirit to make you new and make you born again. But that grace in the coming of Jesus, there's more grace. Grace upon grace. So set your hope on the fact that as good as God has been to you at this point, there is more grace to come. Really good grace. But why? If that's what you're hoping in, hoping in God because of his grace, why should you hope? Our text does not beat around the bush. They don't make you figure this one out. It just tells you. Look at the first word of verse 13. Therefore, hope. The main verb is hope. Therefore, hope. Do you follow the logic here? 1 Peter chapter 1. We aren't the kind of people that come to church and say, it's okay, I know the banks are collapsing left and right. Last year was kind of a crazy year and the stock market was crazy. I know that your health is bad and the doctor's news wasn't very good, but things are going to be okay. Do you ever say that? Do you ever hear people say that to you? I hear it all the time. Why? Why is everything going to be okay? Are you sure? Do you have reasons? Have you banked up reasons for why actually you have hope that things will be okay? As I look at the world around us, I'm not real optimistic. I'm kind of a pessimist when I listen to the news. But when I listen to the news of the gospel, I have hope. How about you guys? Look at our passage. It starts in verse 3. God's mercy is great. Therefore, verse 13 says, hope fully in God. Verse 3 says that he caused us to be born again. Therefore, hope fully in God. You have a living hope. So what should you do with a living hope? Hope fully in God. Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. Therefore, what should you do? Hope. Have hope in the power of the resurrection. You have an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading. What do you do when you've been told that you have an inheritance that is beyond all riches that this earth could offer? What do you do? You hope in it. You put your hope in an inheritance that cannot be taken away. There's a bank account in heaven, and it'll never collapse. Hope in God because you've been saved and are being saved and will be saved. God's sovereignty over all of our trials teaches us that there is no suffering that you will go through from here until he returns. That'll be a waste. It'll be necessary and it'll achieve a purpose that God has planned. Does that give you hope? Well, then put your hope in God. Even though you can't see Jesus, even though you didn't see Jesus, were you around 2,000 years ago? Did you walk this earth and touch him? Were you like Thomas and put your fingers into his nail-pierced hands? No. But what does Peter say? Even though you don't see him, you didn't see him back then, you don't see him now, you believe and you have love. Do you have love in your heart? Some of you are in this room and you're like, I've never seen Jesus in this world, but I know that he's real because I know out of all the various ways to say I know, I know I'm a different person. I know his love has been poured into my heart and I am changed. If that's true, then you should have hope. You should put your hope in the gospel, the resurrection of Christ being poured into the heart and making you new, even if you can't see him now. The prophets of old and the angels from heaven, they long for this salvation. So what should you do? 
You should hope in this salvation. Do you get the point? Verses 3 all the way to 12 are telling you the glories of the gospel. Therefore, what do you do with the gospel? You hope in it. That's what Peter says. Fully trusting in it. That's the main takeaway from verse 13. Put your hope fully in God. But how? Is that a hard? Wouldn't it be helpful if Peter gave us just a few little nuggets to say, all right, here's how you do this. Let's just break this down very practically. Well, good. He did. Verse 13 says, put your hope in the gospel of the appearing of Jesus and his grace by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. That's how. Our passage tells us what to do with the gospel, hope in it. It tells us why we should hope in it, because of how great it is. How much better it is than any other philosophy, any other hope that could be offered in this world. When you put them side by side, isn't it kind of obvious the more you just sit and stare at it? So then how? How do we just build our hope in our hearts? Answer, first, prepare your minds for action. This is a translation of a phrase that literally means this. Tie up your long robe from your hips, because you have flowing robes in the ancient world. And if you want to go out running, you don't wear dress clothes. You wear running clothes. And for them, that meant tie them up. Be tight in your clothing so it's fitting. You go to the gym, you don't see people with real baggy clothes. That's That's what the passage is saying. Tie up the clothes of your mind. It's a metaphor. It's a play on words. It's kind of a neat word picture, though, isn't it? How do I develop hope? Active, vigilant, not passive mindset. A way of living. And so you need to work hard. Tying up your mind. Sober-minded is the next phrase. Literally, the word's just sober. But because of its relationship to the other word, it seems best to see it as like, don't live drunk. And quite literally, that might mean, like, don't live drunk with alcohol and various drugs and substances. But more importantly, make your mind clear. Think hard. Get your mind ready for action. The opposite of this would be, don't put on your bedtime slippers in your brain. You're going to need your running shoes. That's my 2023 Phil translation. Bodily training is of some value, but godliness is a value in every way because it holds promise for not only this life, but the life to come. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy. Are there any of you that spend more time thinking about investing mental and emotional energy for diet and exercise to live a healthier life now? And when you compare and contrast that with the mental and emotional energy that you have about developing hope in God, that it's kind of convicting to think about? We live in a world and an age that's constantly bombarding us with try and live your best life now, whether in the church or outside of it. And to prepare your body and your physical appetite for what's healthy and good. 
How much more for us to have a mental appetite for that which is ultimately and eternally good for us? That's the point of how our hope gets cultivated. If you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to just simply ask you, do do you know what you believe? Do you know what your hope's in? Have you done any inventory? More importantly, do you know why you believe those things? See, in our text, Christians, the Bible teaches us not only that we have a reason for hope, but what that hope specifically is. And it's not just pie-in-the-sky stuff. It's about a real man that walked this earth who died on the cross as our substitute in our place because of his great love for us. He who knew no sin became sin. The righteous for the unrighteous, Peter will say later, so that we could be brought to God in a new relationship with the God of the universe. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, this is the basic message of the gospel. God loves humans, even though they've sinned against him. And he sent his son to die in their place, on a cross, even though he was innocent. But then God, in his great mercy and power, raised him from the dead. And Jesus now is our ascended Savior and King and gives us a new heart by his Holy Spirit. But you have to hope in it. You have to believe it. And as Christians, we not only believe that this is our hope, we've got reasons for it. We've got reasons to say, hey guys, it's really bad right now in your life, in the world, but it's going to be good in the end. Do you believe that? Being a Christian is to fundamentally believe, yes, it will work out in the end for us that are in Christ Jesus. But for all of those who do not repent of their sin and put their faith and their trust in Jesus, I can't say that with the same kind of assurance. It's going to be all good for you in the end. Actually, I don't believe it will. So receive Jesus now. Parents, as you think about your children, are you not only telling them what to believe, what to do, and how to live, but do you tell them why? Our text tells us to put our hope in God, but it also tells us why, and it gives us instructions on how. I think it's important for us to understand the full package of Scripture and not just beat them over the head with imperative commands. Do this, do this, live like this. But here's why, and here's how. I think this is important for our discipleship. We need to work hard on doing exercises with our mind practically so that we stay alert and vigilant. We've got our running shoes on. We're not taking this lackadaisically. We want to be fit, mental Christians. And so, here's a list of ideas for everybody. First, attend weekly corporate worship. Second, join a covenant church that has a covenant that says, we want to help you be holy. Third, regularly then meet with another member of that church for discipleship and help one another very personally and intimately grow in holiness. Fourth, get a good catechism and know what you believe and why you believe it. If you need help on that, ask me. Ask our new family ministries deaconess, Julie Roper. She loves catechisms, right, Julie? Amen. Fifth, memorize scripture. Six, read the Bible regularly, if not daily, and go to the Lord in prayer. Seventh, attend the Wednesday Bible study here at Embassy. Eighth, join a weekly community group. Nine, Have regular rhythms of family worship, like we heard downstairs, 
Mike got up and shared, hey, would you pray that we would be faithful in our family worship? Tenth, read good Christian books. Eleven, learn the practice of fasting so that you can starve your flesh and its passions and feed your mind and your soul with the nurturing value of God and his word. Twelve, buy a dumb phone and put limits on your electronic devices. Maybe even just get rid of your television. Thirteen, get a good night's rest. Do you know how bad your brain works when you're tired? You might as well be drunk, literally. They've done studies that said if you're super tired and you're driving your car, you're just as bad as a drunk person. So get a good night's rest. Maybe say no to a bunch of stuff. Parents, one of my good friends back in D.C., he said, once you start having babies, going to bed early is the new sleeping in. Go to bed early. You're not sleeping in anymore. 5 a.m., 6 a.m., the rhythm of kids. If the, if the kids are quiet and they're asleep, there's nothing else to do, go to bed. Get a good night's sleep. You're going to need it. Stay sharp. Obviously, diet and exercise has some value, so do that too. I mean, we could go on and on, but do you get the point? Like, this is not about a list of things that you need to do in order to become a Christian. This is a list of things to do because God has saved you by his grace. Do not misunderstand that list. This is not about, wow, sounds like there's a lot of to-dos in the Christian life. Well, sort of. Yes and no. Yes, you will not get spiritually stronger and mentally vigilant if you just sit around in your loafers, lying around, well, God's just going to make me holy. No, that's not how this works. At the same time, realize the difference between God and his grace changing you through these actions. You get God's grace. You get to do these things. Because he's saved you. The emphasis is not so much on what you need to do because that way God will love you and accept you. Do you know the difference between those things? The big idea was not if you work really hard at all of these lists of things, then you will have hope and then you will be holy. The big idea was because of God's electing grace. You have the ability now to be holy. So let's consider for the last few minutes, not as long, holiness. Point two, holiness. What's holiness? Sometimes when you hear that word or sing that word, you might think, well, it means to be a good person, morally upright. And while that's true, the word itself just means set apart, utterly unique, pure. And as you can see in our text, it's ultimately a definition about God. God is utterly unique, set apart, unlike anything else that has ever existed. He is the non-created one, the eternal one. So he's utterly unique and different. He's, he is holy. But in addition to that, you can tell by verse 15 but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The usage of holiness here is very much about your moral living. So in this case, if you thought holy, hmm, you're holier than thou. That means you're like a, a Mr. or Mrs. Goody Two-Shoe. You're like a good person. That's kind of what it means here. Even though that's probably a, a simplistic summary, it's the right idea. So that's what holiness is. 
Should you be holy? Why? Well, there's three reasons in our texts, similar to what we saw about hope. There's reasons for hope. And again, parents, brothers and sisters, know not just the fact that God is holy and you should be holy, but why? How does Peter argue his case for why you should be holy? Answer number one, the character of God. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The one who called you is holy, so you should be holy. The first thing that he does in terms of telling us about how to be holy is to realize that it's because of God. His standard is the standard of holiness. And he is the source of all of our holiness. Both the standard and the source. So look to him. Remember point one? Hope in him. Hope in grace. Hope in the fact that grace is coming in the future and it's coming every day with new mercy for you to become holy. Second reason. Not only is holiness rooted in the character of God, it's rooted in the calling of God. He who called you is holy. Have you ever thought about what that means? Called. It's a word thrown around a lot. Christine just finished being the children's ministry deaconess. And sometimes some of you might say, I don't feel called to children's ministry. That's not what we're talking about. That kind of use of calling is a little too flippant. And something you might want to think about. Does God call you to a church and into ministry of the church? Specific ministries of the church? We should think through that a little better. Calling is about God's effectual call that through the Holy Spirit, the gospel preachers that are referenced in verses 10 to 12, but especially in verse 12 of our text, 1 Peter chapter 1, through the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit, he called you and brought you out of darkness and into marvelous light. That's what chapter 2 says. He, he called you out. He said, you're mine. I've elected you. I've chosen you. And through the gospel preaching, empowered by the Spirit, he calls. That's why the big idea is God's election. His choice and his love towards you. That's what will enable holiness. That's what the text says. The one who called you is the very reason why you should be holy. Because he is the one who called you. And he's holy. So it's rooted in his character and it's rooted in his calling. Thirdly, look at the way verse 14 says, as obedient children. The specific way this text should be read or um, understood is not be obedient children, but as obedient children, as in you are children of obedience. Not necessarily something to do, although you should obey, but you obey because that's who you are. So put these three reasons together, logically in your head. You should be holy. Why? God's holy. God called you, and now he's made you one of his children. You ever heard that little phrase, like father, like son? That's what he's talking about. That's who you are. Do you remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about 1 Peter chapter 1? And I was saying imperatives and indicatives. Statements of fact lead to exhortations of what you should do. You are a child of God, so live out that reality. That's what he's doing again here in verse 14. 
the holy God who called made you a child. Based on your good works? Because you were such a great kid? No! Because of just unbelievable, matchless grace of adoption. That's the gospel. He adopted and chose you and plucked you out of darkness into his glorious grace. And when that gospel truth is rooted and understood and believed and hoped in, you live out holy lives. In addition to the motivation of having this kind of message stir up a heart of love that you're like, I want to do that whole list of things that you shared earlier in the service. So we become holy on the basis of knowing God's electing, calling grace. And that's how we live holy in our exile. But there's one more thing our text says, so we should make sure we look at it and realize that there's a specific contrast made. Be holy as God is holy is compared with, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be molded. This is, again, I think a very practical how-to part of the message. There is a pattern and there's a mold. There's a kind of shaping in society. You listen to too much Madonna, pop music by Sam Smith, you're going to think unholiness is cool. So society shapes, and he's saying that pattern and that mold, not just in pop music or in art or entertainment, but in education, in school systems, in all kinds of various ways. Many of us were born up in non-Christian families, and for 18 years you were shaped by non-Christians. You saw a father that didn't love his wife like Jesus Christ, didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. That shaped you. But notice what he says. Be aware of your former ignorance. Be aware of the molding and the shaping that the world was putting on you. And therefore, don't be conformed to that pattern by realizing that your heart and its longings need redirected. That's what that word, passions, it's about your heart. Sometimes this word's translated lust, the lusts. Jesus even used this word to talk about the deep, deep desire he has to be with us again when he returns. So it's actually not a bad word. It's a neutral word. But most of the time, the Bible uses it negatively. Lusting passionately for things that would not honor God. How many of us need to reprogram our lusts, our passions, our desires with the things of God because we have been trained and molded like a little cookie cutter that's what the world wants you to think. You know how many times I've heard even by Christians to say, well, I need to get a divorce because God, he wants me to be happy. No. That, that's not true. There's sometimes grounds for divorce. God wants you to be holy. You see the difference? Sometimes a difficult marriage is a necessary trial for God to make you holy. Do you believe that your supreme goal in life is not fleeting earthly happiness but eternal holiness now apply that to the issue of marriage singleness dating your use of the internet i want to be happy right now instead of delayed gratification later i heard what you said pastor phil about grace that's coming but i want it now hope often means delayed gratification. And that waiting makes you holy. 
because it's showing you really trust his word over all the other promises by advertisers who are manipulating you and thinking that you really need and then whatever the thing they're selling you. So we are shaped by the desire to just be happy now. I want more. I don't have enough instead of gratitude and contentment. How many of us are shaped by the desire for praise and people approval instead of self-sacrificial service and humility as a much greater way of pursuing life in this world? I think especially a lot of us have bought into the lie that we want our, our mold from this world. As we've been told from the moment we've been bored, I want to be free from the obligations of people telling me what to do. And I want to do whatever I want, whenever I want. Whether it's my body, my choice, whether it's I don't want to listen to my mom and dad when I'm a little two-year-old, or whether it's you name it. Freedom and total autonomy is at the heart of sin itself. And for many of us, that is a mold that is difficult to break. Do you truly, truly believe that a master named Jesus Christ who died for you would actually be worse than you being the master of your fate? The captain of your ship? Really? You could do a better job. The infinite, all-wise creator, God, became a human, and this is his display of utter, unique holiness. I'll take your place, even though I didn't do a single thing wrong, and even though you disrespected me. That, my friends, is the power of the gospel to motivate one to say, sign me up. His ways are better than my ways. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Instead, live fully with your hope set on the grace that is coming to enable you to holy life. The big idea is that God's grace and election enables us to be holy during our exile. So I would encourage you to take away this message for your personal life today and our corporate life as a church. Understand God's grace. Put on the running shoes of your mind and go deep in the gospel. Read good books about the gospel. Talk about the gospel. Downstairs, we prayed for what? That after this sermon, you guys wouldn't talk about frivolous things. So game on. Let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about First Peter. Let's talk about God's calling and election. And let's talk about how that fuels holiness. Let's pray now that God would give us that grace. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for being our Father. We are undeserving of this incredible gift of your great mercy. We praise you for your adoption of us as sons and daughters, that we have a new mold to be shaped into, the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would make us more like Christ. 
that we will see him as he truly is. And as we do, our hearts would be purified, as 1 John 3 says. That our hope in him will produce obedience as your children. And that we would live into the reality of our calling. Oh God, would you help us? Give us grace upon grace, even now, as we look forward to the even greater grace that is to come. The grace of a new body, even when our bodies are decaying. The grace of relationships that are unhindered by sin. Full and complete restoration of broken relationships. What a grace. What a gift to know that there will be no kings or governors or mayors or politicians swindling us. No advertisers trying to tell us we need more. God, we long for the day when Jesus returns and makes all things new. And that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is fully and rightly seated on his throne. And with our new resurrected bodies, we will sin no more. Help us hope in this reality and long for it. Help us long even more than the angels in heaven are longing to see this salvation play out in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.